The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawkbox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick. Uh, these are your Friday headlines. Asian equities diverging, actually, after inflation in Japan picks up, accelerating for the first time in four months. Uh, also fueling speculation that the BOJ may move closer to normalizing its ultra-loose monetary policy. A four-day truce between Israel and Hamas taking effect the first tranche of hostages being released at 4 p.m. local time. The first pause in fighting in the seven-week war. Germany takes its foot off the debt break, unveiling a special budget after a bombshell constitutional court ruling throws the country's spending plans into disarray. I know. I see it as my job to make a clean sweep. Only then can we start talking about 2024 and the subsequent years if we have a legally watertight constitutional state of affairs. Barclays reportedly embarks on a £1 billion cost-cutting plan with up to 2,000 jobs on the chopping block as the bank tries to boost its book value ahead of a strategy revamp in February. Uh, lovely to see you this morning. Good morning. Uh, I think it's been an extraordinary week. Uh, and I know it's been a shortened week for a lot of our US audience who, who still tune in. They've got a shortened trading today and obviously mm. had Thanksgiving yesterday. And I hope they had a fantastic time doing that as well, uh, wherever you are around the world. But I think there's been an extraordinary set of events this week. I just want to just encapsulate what I think. A, of course, we've got the tragic events going on in two devastating wars as well. We hear less about Ukraine at the moment, uh, hearing a lot about Hamas, Israel, and we've got a lot of coverage on that later on as well. But, but in terms of closer to our remit, in terms of business, economics, uh, global politics and the markets as well, I do think it's been fascinating as well because the markets have pushed on, uh, carry on by and large going up in the hope that actually uh, we are closer to a pivot on interest rates as well. And yet there are unwelcome signs still around the world that the job on inflation is not done. And we're seeing later, uh, more evidence on that in literally in the last couple of hours from Japan as well. And we'll come back to that story later on as well. But I think in terms of the individuals as well, the politics, I, I almost put out a tweet yesterday. I, I, I did do a couple actually. Uh, and it was almost who has been the most meteoric um, in terms of the big stories this week? Was it Sam Altman or Gert Wilders? And I know that they are so different and such different stories. But if you think about what the meteoric moves going on at OpenAR, which you led our coverage on, and it's just amazing looking at what's going on and the ramifications for Microsoft you were talking about, for OpenAI, for AI more generally, uh, and safety versus profit. And yet on this side of the Atlantic as well, seeing someone who is pretty unambiguously far right and anti-European commission and anti-immigration and anti-Islam as well, having such a preeminent position in European politics, potentially forming a government. Again, it's a long way from that as well. I think there's been lots of meteoric things going on around our, our orbit this, this week. I think it's about market expectations, right? <clears throat> the Sam Altman story was about the market that has gone very aggressively into AI. So there's a ton of hype there. There's a ton of expectations on the execution. So his departure, I think, just put question marks over 
the OpenAI story and just how quickly they'd push ahead, but also around Microsoft and made some sort of step back and think about the growing pains and just how strong that AI story could be. The other story around Gertrude, this is interesting, and we heard it yesterday around the set, that there's pretty much no political premium now in some of the sovereign debt in Europe. If that comes back in 2024, thanks to a move to the far right, thanks to concerns around immigration policy around various different countries in Europe. And again, it changes the narrative, right? It changes everything we've known for the last few years about cohesion in Europe and some of that fading political premium in some of the sovereign bonds. We've got a great guest coming up in a moment as well, and I know you're going to look at the markets, but uh, Charles-Henri Morchal joining us in a few moments' time. We'll come to that. But but, but the reason why I want to encapsulate this is like, what has Sam Altman got to do with Gert Villers? Our viewers are saying, well, everything, actually, because our world takes in and we never know what we're going to get. Our, the ingredients come from everywhere. They come from European uh, extreme politics. They come from open AI. They come from Japanese policy. They come from the debt break story, which we'll be covering in detail in Germany today. And we have to put all these ingredients together and then try and come up with some form of dialogue for our audience to make their own decisions. But, and again, in the meantime, the, the, these markets... Fascinating. Yeah, I might just go for a little walk and take you through some of the action that we've seen because you point out that it's been a narrative of strong markets and even though we've had a shortened trading week, it's been a fourth straight positive week for some of the major board stateside. So investors have had a pause from that US action for Thanksgiving and across on the Asian markets still trading around this activity. You can see it is a mixed picture, directionless for the Australian market, uh, waiting it up for the US cousins. The uh, Chinese markets, we had a flip higher yesterday on the back of hopes for some support for the property market, but a flip lower for that same property segment today, which is pulling that major board lower, 1.7% down on Hong Kong stocks. Japan returning to trade after a holiday yesterday, and you can see climbing at this stage back towards a 33-year peak that we saw on Monday. But again, inflation numbers that we'll go through in a moment. Uh, That's key. Again, another headline act here is uh, the Bank of Japan tries to hold back from uh, the exit that you've seen from other central banks. I want to take you to Treasuries, and uh, we've got the market uh, to show you here, 4.46. So we moved lower in recent days, recent weeks, and you can see uh, we're still hovering below the 1.5% mark, 4.94 below 5% on that metric as well. To the dollar and uh, what we're seeing on that uh, foreign exchange trade, sterling euro both supported morning session bit more appetite for risk on currencies, dollar fading versus the Japanese yen as well, 149.26. The market reacting to some of that inflation data today. We've got a two-tenths dip on the dollar versus the yen, dollar perched high versus the yuan. WTI, that's been a fascinating trade this week along with Brent. And you can see a bit of a mixed bag for both today, 81.5 on Brent, 76.51 on WTI. The postponing, postponement of an OPEC Plus meeting has just put question marks over the journey here around targeting supply and uh, whether the Saudis are truly in charge of the levers from here. So there was a fade on the price action as a result of that postponement. Elsewhere on gold prices are just shy of the $2,000 mark. To US futures, what lies ahead later on today, that half trading session that we'll have. A little bit of green on the board, so the intention to pick up on some of that green that we saw before we closed out the week for Thanksgiving. So the market expected a return for Black Friday. And I think that's the thing. It's about the consumer and how the spending patterns are going to hold up over the course of the next couple of days. For sure, yeah. And there's um, there's been a lot of concern from the likes of Target and Walmart and others about what is actually going on. Uh, In the meantime, I mentioned this earlier on, Japan saw an uptick in core inflation in October with prices rising uh, 2.9% on the year. That is just shy of expectations. The uh, stubborn price growth increases. Speculation the country's central bank could pull from its ultra-loose 
easy monetary policy after what's now 19 consecutive months of above target inflation. But it's all about wage price spirals in terms of the BOJ. Uh, let's get to Bank C's CIO, Charles-Henri Monchal, who joins us now uh, to go through Morning. some of the surprises the firm uh, says could be on the horizon for the next year. Uh, and Charles-Henri, lovely to see you. Uh, look, I don't know how much of you caught of our previous conversation, but there are so many elements going into the market decisions of you and other market practitioners. Um, I'm going to have to cherry pick because we, we could spend an hour talking about all your different points. But I'm going to cherry pick your surprise number six for 2023, which is that inflation comes back with a vengeance, vengeance and inflation-related assets soar. And you've got a high probability on this one. And I mention this, of course, in relation to uh, the concerns or the pontifications over Japanese inflation per se. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Karen. Yes, uh, indeed, uh, it's currently very low uh, in terms of expectations by consensus. If you look at the Bank of America fund manager survey, only 6% of the fund managers expect inflation to be higher next year than now. So, of course, scenario is for disinflation, but there are many alternative scenarios. And one of them is indeed inflation coming back with a vengeance similar to what we have seen in the 70s and early 80s. How could it be? Well, you know, you mentioned wages in Japan. The same story in U.S., in Europe. In the U.S., you know, the automobile um, uh, uh, labor unions has for 33% uh, wage rise next year. So that, that's one of them. Decarbonization is still there, you know, uh, still uh, lack of supply uh, on, on, on the old side. And then we have deglobalization, which is also a factor which could put push inflation higher. So that's not a core scenario, but we know that after this steep fall, also helped by some base effects, there are always let's say, a risk for inflation to come back, especially with the fiscal stimulus we've got you know, throughout the whole year. 2023 is a miracle. Uh, growth has been you know, resilient despite the fact that inflation coming down. Unemployment rate has not been going up. There is one reason of this is biodynamics, is supply, uh, sorry, is fiscal stimulus helping the economy to stay afloat. And there would be also consequences on inflation at some point. Uh, but Charles-Henri, I guess what I'm asking is, and of course there's been a lot of academic debate about whether this spurious 2% inflation target globally should actually be looser and whether it is actually uh, really looser in reality as well. But, but in terms of the market preparedness for a higher inflation rate globally in 2024 as well, I've got to be brutally honest, when I look at bond market reactions to the slightest utterances from the Federal Reserve and others, I don't see a great deal of preparedness in the market for higher, for longer. You know, because, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the consensus uh, is looking also very, you know, short term. And, and short term, the, the most likely scenario is for a soft landing and then some kind of cyclical recession. So the bond market is, is probably buying this scenario. The reason why you know, we are putting together these surprises is that there are always, let's say, some let's say unexpected events coming. And this one, you could test that many of the market participants which who are currently playing these long bonds trades, they still fear that in the long run, we could see inflation coming back. So it's always a question of, let's say, timing and time horizon. It's probably going to, indeed, gonna, we're going to go through a period of, let's say, low inflation. And by the way, the Japanese numbers this, this morning, if you look at uh, X Energy and Fresh Foods, it's still going to the right direction. Does it mean that the battle against inflation is won? Probably not. 
Charles Henri, let me ask you about the surprise number two behind that door. You say, well, there's a, a medium-term prob probability that uh, the magnificent seven bubble gets purged. So this is an interesting one because, for me, it looks like a little bit uh, similar to the trade we've had around the Nasdaq. Every time you get a pullback, there's a re-entry point for a lot of investors and goes right back up again. This is the same playbook, isn't it, for the magnificent seven? So how do they get purged? How does this bubble get pricked uh, down the track? Yeah, first, uh, it's it's a crowded trade. Huh? Uh, if you look at hedge fund positioning, you know, there have never been, let's say, so net long on this magnificent seven. But the point here is that if you look uh, at 2023, we all know that 90% of the S&P 500 advance is coming from these seven names. Now they make 50% of the NASDAQ 100. One, the reason why they've been going higher is not just P expansion, is the fact that the market has been you know, constantly revising upward the earnings expectations. Earnings expectations are quite optimistic for next year. So the point here is that if we got any bad surprises in terms of AI capex, you know that technology adoption, the curve is always steeper than anticipated. It always takes more time than we think for a technology to be adopted. So if we get some, uh, let's say, bad surprises in terms of AI capex, that means that earnings will disappoint. And then we could see a pullback. Again, you know, we still like some of these max seven. But here the point is that there is a lot, let's say, of risk attached to this very small number of stocks because they made, you know, they saved the party for 2023, but they can spoil the 2024 party if, you know, the numbers are not in line with expectations. I want to get to some politics too. Uh, that one captured my eye. A third man enters the race for Washington. Senator Manchin, he's highlighted some of his ambitions. You think he could be a possible contender? But the point here is that I think never ever we, we got so you know, high-risk presidential election in the US with two candidates which which are definitely not, let's say, a fascinating, even their own supporters. So, you know, that there is a, a, a fund because all of, of this is linked, obviously, to having enough money to go for campaign. There is a fund called No Labels, and the money keep pouring into these, these funds. What they want, the, the, the way they're going to spend this money is only if there is a candidate who is able to win some states. If a candidate is able to win some states, then the 270 bars might not be hit by any of the candidates. And then that means that Congress needs to decide on this. So the point is that it's probably very unlikely. It hasn't happened over the last two, 200 years. But if there is the sentiment in the market that there is a third candidate who can come, let's say, to challenge uh, the two main guys, then, you know, it can create some volatility, some, let's say, unknowns. And uh, as you know, market, they don't like, uh, let's say, surprises. They don't like to... To, to know, you know, uh, to see that, that they, where they are not going to. So I think that can create some volatility in 2024. Um, Charles-Henri, I'm very disappointed with you. Um, we've got, <laughs> we've, we've got uh, one of the biggest issues. You're sitting on the fence. You've got a medium probability uh, about the Magnificent Seven bubble getting purged. Come on, come off that fence. Is it going to happen or not? I think again, you know, it's uh, for, for for the long run. There, you, we believe in this AI revolution. We also believe in Darwinism. You know, it's uh, the, the the big guys, you know, hit the, the smaller ones. Uh, but again, it has been let's say so high in terms of expectation. And we saw with Nvidia. Nvidia numbers were fantastic, but the fact that they were just at the top of the whisper guidance, and the fact that they came with some let's say negative comments about China demands 
was enough to not help the stock moving higher, but the numbers were fantastic. So I think it gives a bit of, let's say, a glimpse of what could you know, 2024 be for these names because the expectations are super high. And uh, let's just uh, focus on Bitcoin for a moment. Crypto world has been rocked by Binance this week. You see a surge above 100K as a, a medium term prob probability. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, like uh, planet alignments uh, uh, for Bitcoin uh, next year uh, is the halving in April 2024, potentially a, a Bitcoin spot ETF. I think the Binance case probably increased the probability because the Binance uh, uh, issue was was one of the, let's say, elements uh, which is uh, preventing, let's say, SEC to move forward. So I think it is increased the chances. We might see FTX coming back to life. So there, there is there are several elements which seem to indicate that there will be some momentum. And don't forget the macro, you know, uh, story. You know, it's we live in a world with you know uh, uh, with debts, you know, which cannot stop you know moving higher. Uh, you know, and this creates also some discourse uh, from investors with the Fed, with U.S. Treasuries. So the investors are looking for places to hide. Gold is one of the beneficiary, but digital gold could also benefit from this. Jean-Henri, we are going to leave it there. Oh, we might not see you before the interview, but if we don't, uh, I suppose we start in that how old happy Christmas, happy holidays thing. But it uh, seems a bit early, doesn't it? Jean-Henri, mon cher, lovely to see you, sir. Uh, we thoroughly enjoyed reading your, uh, your surprises and what you got right last year and what you got wrong. We'll come back to that another time. Uh, the CIO, of course, of Bank Seas. Now, you've, uh, gone, bit of... you've gone for it. You've brought the mince pies in this morning. You're doing a Merry Christmas. No, no, because well, happy we, we're New losing year. team members left, right and centre to the holiday it's season. It's I mean, we we're not losing them. Happy holidays, we lost so. Arabia on Tuesday to South Africa and yes. we're losing uh, our supervising producer. Producer Katie, who hasn't hasn't taken a minute's holiday this year, so she could save up. I don't know our entire CNBC allocation, which is a week and a half, to go to New Zealand. Trapes across the uh, world, yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's taken that whole week, so she's off to New Zealand just, just uh, after the trip. show. So uh, yes, indeed. And uh, now I've got some news. Uh, the Foxconn founder Terry Guo uh, says he is withdrawing from the race to be the Taiwanese president. This was. Uh, um, there were questions about this earlier on as well. The decision, according to one bit of copy I'm looking at, brings an end uh, to uh, Guo's uh, years-long pursuit of Taiwan's most powerful job, at least for now. The businessman has made no secret of his political ambitions since flirting with the idea of a presidential run back in 2019. His platform is pursuing peace talks uh, with China and acting as a key intermediary between Washington and Beijing. So says the businessstandard.com copy on this. Moving on. The latest minutes out of the European Central Bank point to the possibility of further interest rate hikes down the line, even if it's not in the baseline scenario. The ECB ended a series of 10 consecutive rate hikes last month, keeping its deposit rate steady at 4%. The minutes showed that all ECB officials agreed inflation in the Eurozone is falling as expected, if not even slightly faster. The Bundesbank has lauded Germany's lenders for remaining well capitalised amid a high interest rate environment but in its financial stability report also warns of prospective challenges ranging from weak credit demand to unrealised loan losses. Annette caught up with the vice president of the Bundesbank, Claudia Busch, and asked how she would summarise the current landscape for financial firms. We have a very uncertain environment. Um, uh, we've seen a big increase in interest rates, much larger than, than in the past 25 years. And that, of course, was kind of real stress for the financial sector. So these were kind of the adverse scenarios of the past, which have now um, become re reality to some extent. 
And we must say that actually the financial sector dealt quite well with this increase in interest rates. At the same time, the full effects are not yet visible. So they haven't really worked their way through the balance sheets of the banks. And this is why we caution the banks, as usual. Resilience is really of, of utmost importance at, at the current juncture. The banks are highly profit, profitable at the moment, and um, I think it's good if they use this profitability to increase their resilience, sufficient capital, sufficient li liquidity, but also investments into IT to shield against uh, cyber risks. Yeah, especially uh, if we talk about the economy and also the bank's balance sheets, um, it doesn't seem that they have increased their risk provisions quite uh, a bit especially because the economy seems to be so souring. Um, so would you say that needs to come and we will see more um, provisions and for MPLs going forward? Yeah, so provisioning has increased a bit, but if you compare it to historical averages, it's still at a relatively low level. And the same actually holds for corporate insolvency. So also corporate insolvencies, which actually came down over the past 20 years, have increased slightly, but still way below historic averages. And I mean, in all likelihood, given the structural change that we have, given the uncertainty that we have around us, uh, ins corporate insolvencies are likely to increase, credit risk is likely to increase, and this is why we, on both sides, from the macroprudential side and the microprudential side, uh, really make banks aware of these risks and, and urge them to, to in increase um, whatever they can, um, uh, their, their resilience. Uh, coming up on the show, Germany plans to suspend its debt break as the country tackles a budgetary crisis. We'll bring you the latest developments next. Plus, the US celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday and retailers preparing for well, a vital holiday season. We'll look at what to expect later in the show. And we'll be speaking to the president and CEO of Nissan, Makoto Uchida-san. That's uh, 8.15 CET, with the company expected to announce a major investment in the United Kingdom. Don't miss that first on CNBC interview. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Israel's central bank is widely expected to keep rates steady at 4.75% at its meeting Monday. Annual inflation in the country ran at 3.7% in October. That is well off the year's highs, but also above target. Economists now expect the Bank of Israel to start cutting rates next year. The two sides agreed a four-day humanitarian pause with Hamas set to release the first group of hostages taken during its attack on the 7th of October and Israel releasing a number of prisoners. Additional aid will also begin to flow into Gaza. Fighting continued, however, in the hours leading up to the truce with a hospital in Gaza City among the targets. A spokesperson for Qatari's foreign ministry said Qatar and Egypt, to help broker the truce, were looking for a long-term solution. Our main hope is that this humanitarian truce will give us all the opportunity to tackle the bigger task, which is to implement a permanent truce and achieve long-lasting peace. 
and these four days will also be used to gather information regarding the rest of the hostages and to look into releasing a higher number of them and in turn extend this truce. Israeli intelligence officers reportedly ignored a detailed warning of a Hamas raid. That's according to the Financial Times, which says a report sent to the Israeli military a week before the attack on the 7th of October was dismissed as an imaginary scenario. Well, let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, lots of pieces there to thread the needle between, but perhaps you want to kick off with this ceasefire. Indeed, Karen, and let me just walk you through some key points here as we look at these live pictures coming in from the Gaza border. This truce became into effect only an hour ago, and this is a very tense moment on both sides. That's the first point to make here. There is still a lot of mistrust. There is still a lot of room for error as we see this truce now underway. This is the first break in fighting that we've seen in the almost two months long war between Israel and Hamas. Several things are going to happen over the next few hours. Later today, we're going to see the start of the hostage and prisoner swap with 50 hostages to be freed from Gaza and 150 Palestinians from Israel. That first group of 13 hostages will be released at 4 p.m. local time today. More hostages are expected in the coming days. And this is a major moment because this breakthrough caps weeks of negotiations brokered by the United States, Qatar and Egypt. But the key question here is, will this truce hold? And most importantly, what is going to happen next? Will this pause be used to build momentum for additional prisoner exchanges, which is currently what has been written in the current agreement? Does it build momentum for an actual ceasefire or will there be a return to fighting? Israeli leaders have already indicated that they are not yet satisfied that their mission and their goal of eradicating Hamas has been completed. And of course, many Gazans fear that Israel will only ramp up its offensive once this ceasefire has been lifted. Of course, the primary focus right now is on this prisoner swap and hostage exchange and whether or not this truce is going to hold. But of course, under this agreement, we are also going to see critical respite for the people of Gaza, more aid trucks moving across the border and entering Gaza, of course, carrying critical medical supplies and fuel as well. So this is finally a positive step forward in addressing what has been a rapidly unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza as well. Of course, all of this really hinges on whether or not we see both sides adhering to this deal over the coming hours. And that, of course, remains to be seen at this point. It's back over to you for now. Dan, thank you very much for bringing us the update. We will continue this conversation later in this show. We're going to be joined by Mark Rejev, who is the former Israeli ambassador to the UK and senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You can tune into that interview at 9.30 CET. And for more on the four-day pause in fighting and hostage release, you can follow our live blog on cnbc.com. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.